0: This is Open Work, a look inside the watch industry, a podcast from Collective Horology. I'm Gabe Riley, co-founder of Collective.
1: And I'm Asher Rapkin, co-founder of Collective.
0: And today on the podcast, we're doing 2024 predictions. We're recording this at the beginning of the year, and we figured, now is as good a time as any to talk about what we see in the year ahead. And uh, we'll each make three predictions. So, Asher, you'll get three predictions. I'll make three predictions. We'll discuss those. We should probably come back to this at the end of next year or maybe when we do our 2025 predictions and uh, take a look at, at, at how we did. But before we get into those, it probably makes sense to start with where we are in the industry now because obviously that sets the context for where things are going. Yeah, so we're coming out of...
1: Uh as I think most listeners who are uh, even moderately interested in the industry know, we're coming out of a, a period of in, intense bull market um, that for the last 18 months or so has been cooling significantly. And uh, I'm using the metric of the secondary market here, not the primary market. And I'll caveat this by saying that personally, I don't believe that the financial uh, value of a watch is a accurate measurement of the quality of the watch. But We're not here to talk about that right now. We're here to talk about the industry, and obviously the industry runs on money. And that means that the value of these objects not only is uh, a metric for uh, customers and end users who collect them, but also a key metric uh, when people consider buying and therefore influences the revenue of these larger companies that manufacture these watches. We're starting to see things level out, which is to say demand is beginning to cool, and even though there are more collectors now than there were, Prior to the pandemic, for sure, um, several um, large large percentage have certainly left uh, the community um, since the bubble has uh, essentially burst. And what that's meant is that the secondary market has cooled and returned to a more rational state. And that, of course, is now also impacting the primary market because secondary values, as I mentioned earlier, definitely have a lot to do with the way a lot of people think about collecting and therefore how they buy. So with FOMO taken off the table, this idea that if I don't buy it right now, I'm never going to have a chance, we're back to more considered purchasing uh, behaviors amongst clients. And, you know, that's definitely not a bad thing, but it does impact the overall industry. So in short, um, I think we're back to a place of a bit of slower acquisition from a customer standpoint and perhaps more moderate production from a uh, industry standpoint.
0: Yeah, that that makes sense. And that's exactly um, how how I think about it. And, you know, the the other aspect I would add to that is the liquidity that existed in the watch market, meaning if you had a watch Mm -hmm. and you're interested in getting another, when the market was red hot, it was very easy to do that, right? You could often move out of a watch you had and either recoup most of your money or in some cases, all or more of your money. And it just created a liquidity in the watch market that further helped to to move watches. And now I think what's happening is because that liquidity has come out of the market, people think twice before buying a new watch mm-hmm. because it may not be as easy to move on from the watches they have or trade it or sell it. And so that just makes everything that much more um, considered. But I think you're right. If I th- if I take a much longer term view of it, there are still many more collectors who are still in the market and still active in the market and still collected and interested about watches and, and, and really have become long-term members of the watch community than there were in in 2019 and and that's a good thing and if the market is more rational rational and if the speculators are out of the market that that's again a good thing for anyone who's approaching this with the pure intentions of it's a hobby it's something they love and it gives them joy and yeah, that's a good you, thing
1: you bring something up that that is interesting and i is probably worth exploring for one minute which is the idea of like the speculator. Um, You know, the concept of somebody buying a lot of watches to make money off of them isn't necessarily bad for the watch industry. And I know that that's kind of a weird thing to say, but that sold a lot of watches. The problem with that is that when the bottom falls out, there's no home for those watches. It's not so much that, like, Asher wanted a watch and he couldn't get it because someone was faster on the drop. That's annoying. But now, if all of those watches are flooding the market, the value of that particular reference or the hypothetical value of that brand is diminished, which is a significant problem. So to a certain degree, speculators create market impact in ways that are outside of just the annoyance of not being able to get the thing that you want. And that's certainly something that we're going to be contending with. Uh, in the coming months
0: yeah there there are a lot of watches and it 's hard to know how many watches dealers are holding on the primary market, so new watches, but if you take a look at um, day supply on the secondary market. So watch charts is a great, uh, great source for this. You know the average day supply of of a lot of references is is as you know high as it's ever been. And you know just a simple look at Watch Recon or or Chrono Twenty Four will show you as much. If you're looking for a particular watch now pre owned, you're going to see a lot more examples of it than you than you have um than than you have in in, in the past. And um, well, why don't we segue now, knowing that to um, to where we think things are going in in 2024, um, and I'll actually start because my my first prediction is really mu- very much tied to to what we were just talking about, which is to say, I think what we're going to see is a rationalization of supply, and here's here's what I mean by that. Um, It's no secret that in the past, and certainly this is like before COVID, um, a lot of the major watch brands in Switzerland produced more watches and put more watches into the retail channel than there was demand for. And I think a great example of this, one that you and I have talked about before, is the Omega Speedmaster. It's sort of a, a great case study in this. I remember... Gosh, you know, 2017 or so, um, I bought a Speedmaster on the pre-owned market, a like new Speedmaster with open papers, uh, for about $3,000. And that was about, uh, you know, just over half of what they would go for retail. Now, if you were to buy, um, a Speedmaster, even in the market that we're talking about today, where, where demand has cooled, um, a Speedmaster, new Speedmaster, uh, or like new Speedmaster secondary market is going to be around $6,000. Now, of course, the pr- we're talking about two different watches, two different reference numbers. We're We're talking about all sorts of things like price increases and inflation along the way. But that watch now holds more residual value than it did before. And what it shows me is that in this case, Omega is more mindful of the supply of these things that they're putting into the market than they have in the past. And there's a recognition, I think, that they and others are going to want to avoid an oversupply of watches. I think it's taken the watch industry about a year or so to catch on to this idea that the industry is in a period of, of, of a slowdown. Um, I think when we met with a lot of brands over the last year, they still hadn't really... Reckoned with that, and certainly their planning had not reckoned with that. And if you imagine 2024, a lot of brands are planning for 2024 and 2022 when demand um, was still at still at all time highs. So I think what we're going to see now is yes, there's a cool down in the market, but I think the brands this time are going to be willing to do what it needs do what needs to be done to rationalize the supply of watches. And I think you're going to see supply of watches um, kind of get checked and come into check.
1: As you were saying that, what I was thinking too is uh, just a reminder of who the clients of the majority of these brands really are. You know, there are obviously direct-to-consumer brands that are out there and there are certainly boutiques and, um, you know, direct-to-consumer channels these days. But the majority of the watch industry, the retailers are the clients and the buyers of these watches. And when you talk about supply you have a couple of potential fail points in there, which are interesting, right? It's not just the brands that need to be cognizant of the total supply. It's also, you know, what folks like us, retailers, do when we do our projections to figure out what we think we can rationally sell and therefore what we buy. So sometimes when you talk to a brand, they'll talk about a watch being, quote, sold out, and that just means that it's been sold out to the, retail. to the retailers right yeah. but it's not actually sold out to consumers in the way that a collector would think about it so to that end when we think about rationalizing supply it's it's all the way through the supply chain you know from from the product management standpoint all the way down to how many watches are going to be actually produced all the way through to how many watches will then be purchased and then uh, before they even make it to the market and the real demand is determined
0: yeah and i think this year we, we saw and we heard anecdotally from a lot of dealers that they were pushing back on the brands and telling them, Whoa, 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 hold on a second. Um, uh, you need to cool it uh, on the watches. You're asking me, uh, you're asking me to, to take. And I think that message is finally sinking in. You know, you, if you're a brand, you maybe hear that from one or two dealers at first, but you're looking at your numbers and they're still strong. I think now the chorus from the dealers and from the retail channels back to the brands is going to be very clear and consistent, which is we need a rational level of, of supply coming in, not more than, m- more than we can take on. And I think this time the brands are going to be willing to do it. And here's why. During the boom of, of the watch industry, a lot of them saw the benefits... Of having constrained supply. Now, obviously, they were constrained because of demand. They were constrained because of uh, parts and and uh, watchmakers and all sorts of uh, limitations on what they could produce. But they saw the value it has for their brand, for their product, for uh, their their pricing power um, when de- when supply is is constrained. And I think now they're going to be willing to make some of the hard choices. And part of this this prediction has a bit of a dark side, which is to say, I think they're not only willing to uh, to taper production, but I think they're willing to do a few things. Some brands are going to decide that they cannot be in business anymore, or they need to consolidate. Um, I think there will uh be production cuts which also means there could be layoffs in in the watch industry things like marketing budgets and things like that could get could get cut and you know those are the reasons generally in the past I think the industry has shied away from cutting supply because when you cut supply you need to cut budgets and you need to cut staff. And that's a really hard and a painful and a terrible thing to do. And and that's probably part of the reason. and you also have quarterly numbers you need to make, but I think uh, brands are going to be willing to do that now to, to defend uh, their margins and defend their brands in a way that they weren't uh, willing to do in the past.
1: Yeah. I mean, the other way to look at that too is also how these brands often make money, which is, you know, again, excluding direct to consumer is in wholesale, Which means that if you want to make more money with less watches, the watches have to cost more. Which um, sort of leads into one of my thoughts around how brands are are going to end up diversifying. Because you have this interesting uh, push and pull with two polar. uh, So
0: this is prediction number two now. Correct. This is prediction Prediction number two. two. (laughs) Uh,
1: Which which leads into this idea, right? Think about it like this In the primary market over the last few years, as uh, uh, supply was constrained, demand and interest increased. Um, in many cases, prices did too, quite significantly. As the second, but the secondary market was strong, so it, it was rising to meet. In many cases, rising to meet the primary market cost. So you know, if you look at like a 15500 15, from AP, for example, or other examples of watches that had a moment in the sun, like the Gerard Pergo uh, Laureato, great watch. You know, that watch got almost four thousand dollars more expensive during the pandemic, but the secondary market rose to meet it. Now, as we've returned to a more rational uh, time, Gerard Perko is trading at about 50 cents on the dollar against um, the retail price. Not because the watch isn't a good watch. I want to say that again, because really important to reiterate, financial value of a watch does not correlate to its quality. Yeah, in the case of the Laureato, that's a watch we both love. Totally. But I bring that up to say, now there's a problem, right? Because now... You have a consumer that's looking at a watch on the secondary market for $7,000 that retails for $15,000 and the money that the brand was counting on, which is the wholesale, is going to be very challenging because now a retailer is going to be not as bullish on bringing those watches in because remember, if if you're negotiating with a retailer, that's coming out of their percentage of the sale, not the wholesale back to the brand. So the brand is still making their money but the retailer is actually making less, which disincentivizes them from buying more. So that creates a really tough problem. So to my prediction, we saw an interesting move with a brand that I would argue is in this position, which is Breitling. George Kern has done an incredible job with the brand. I uh, Honestly, I, I was super skeptical, and um, I'm utterly impressed with what he built with that brand. However... He has also increased the prices of these products quite significantly. I think a stock Navitimer is around $9,100 right now. And if you compare that on the secondary market, those are trading for almost half that, maybe a little bit more. Now, that's a problem. But he's got a really interesting solution, I would say, which is what they've just done with the acquisition of Universal Genève. This is an interesting move because this allows him and Breitling to produce Not that many uh, references and not that many examples of each reference at a much higher price point, which creates that constrained inventory against a demand that has been in the industry and the collector community now for decades since uh, uh, since Universal Genève went out of business and allows them to, once again, have higher priced product and manage the market in a way that will make sure that the secondary is strong. And we have examples of this in the market already. We saw this with uh, Gerald Genta um, coming back with the uh, the Mickey retrograde, excuse me, jump hour, um, uh, a couple of months, was it last year, two years ago? Uh, Which was constrained demand, increased price, um, and super limited distribution, which was a significant benefit to the brand. Now, that's not going to solve... A you know a larger problem like all of Breitling's prices are too high, for example. But it will help, and it's one way to be able to approach a financial challenge um, in the way that some of these brands are probably heading towards, uh, without having to like cut prices, which is bad news for everybody involved: collectors, brands, authorized dealers. Like everybody loses in a sense when brands cut uh, cut prices, and some are doing that. But it's obviously like it's it's a little bit of a nuclear option. Whereas looking for other ways to make money is possible. So if we were to summarize the prediction, it's that I think we're going to start seeing brands looking for ways to either bring back heritage, acquire other, um, acquire other makers, or create essentially sub uh, lines within their own uh, brand that can be sold at a higher cost, lower quantity, um, and therefore make them more in wholesale, make the market more uh, uh, hungry for them, and increase um, the defensibility of the retail price by the retailer.
0: Yeah, I think it's also an interesting carrot for for the retailer. So, I you know part of what you're predicting here in in the case of Breitling is that UG will be a premium brand relative to, to Breitling. It'll be at yeah. a at a higher price point and uh, quote better finishing and blah blah blah. Um, which which is an interesting which is an interesting premise, and certainly other brands have that strategy if they're doing that it's an interesting approach to give a carrot to their retailers as well which is to oh, say sure. if you carry brightling if you do well with brightling if you're turning the watches if your customer um, customers are happy and satisfied you have a nice build out blah 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 you're going to get an allocation of these pieces which are higher margin uh, lower uh, lower quantity you can sell at full price and and all that sort of stuff it's a, it's an interesting approach it sort of helps everyone mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, totally. So I think it was you know it's a smart move by them. Um and it, it goes back to that that first, you know, conversation topic that we had about this the reality of the industry that we're in right now and how the and how we should all be thinking about this strategically to make sure that everyone continues to do well.
0: Well that, that prediction and that way of thinking about um The relationship between the the brand and the retailer actually brings me to my second prediction here, which is around um, what we've we've seen in the last few years, which is um, especially with the large brands, but even with some indies, this uh, relentless move to mono brand retail Mm -hmm. Uh, in in particular company owned and operated boutiques or in some cases boutiques that are um, owned and operated by um, by uh, authorized dealer. But they're mono brand boutiques. There has been this relentless push towards that, and it's made sense for a few reasons, and it's had some tailwinds. It makes sense because if you're the brand, this allows you to claim the full margin on the watch. Uh, it also gives you control over the uh, the, the customer relationship and, and over the long term, which has has value. And it's, the customer's experience of the brand, too. That, that, that's true. Yeah, and there are some brands that do great with their in-person experience and in their mono-brand boutiques. You and I both love... Any and every IWC boutique we've ever been to, the service is very friendly, very uh, just exceptional. It's a, a wonderful experience. And it's uniform, you know what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think so, so the benefits are, are particularly for the brand, are really clear. I mean, there are some benefits for customers as well. If you're a hardcore client of a particular brand, then there's a, a benefit for a direct relationship with the brand and the, the boutique but the, it's been aided by a tailwind you know this relentless pursuit of mono brand retail has been aided by this tailwind we were just talking about where watch prices had nowhere to go but up there was more demand than there was supply it sort of allowed and enabled the brands to get away with moving relentlessly towards mono brand retail given what we talked about as far as the state of the market now where we're in a much more of a buyers market than a sellers market i think we're going to start to see I'd Not see that unwind, but I think we 're going to see this come into greater balance where brands are going to recognize that there is value both to mono brand retail but also just as much, if not more, in preponderance to multi brand retail as well um, because the, the the retailers do a, a few things first of all if you're a customer, it just makes way more sense i think to have if you 're you know the average sort of watch buyer, it makes way more sense to have a relationship with a multi brand retailer because Presumably, you're going to be interested in a number of watches and brands they carry over time, and you can build a relationship with them based on your purchase of of a number of different brands. You don't just have to keep buying one brand to have a relationship and get, you know, the kind of treatment you would expect to get as a as a valuable um, uh, a customer, and you get you just get get more access. Um, I think that's a real benefit. I think there's a benefit, though, and I'm curious for your take on this, for the brands themselves, which is retailers provide them with cash flow and liquidity. Selling watches retail is really tough. Watches at retail are sold one at a time, and that's not easy to do. I mean, We know that's not easy um, to do. Whereas when you're a brand selling wholesale to a retailer, you can sell multiple watches, dozens of watches at a time. You can even discuss an order that takes place over an entire year. Uh, there's an efficiency to that. Uh, there's liquidity that comes with that. When you send your watches, you send an invoice along for all of the watches and you're paid on whatever the terms are, but you know, generally some period after the watches are delivered. And that provides a form of, of cash flow and and financing to the brands, which I think is now more valuable than ever. Yeah, a
1: hundred percent. I mean, look, I I want to preface by saying I think that mono brand boutiques, from a consumer standpoint, actually do offer um, a benefit, right? And that could be whether you go to a mad gallery and you have the opportunity to see four or five, um, you know, horological machines in one place. That's that's very difficult to see anywhere, anywhere outside of a private collection. You know, if you go to a retailer if you're lucky, if there's two or three pieces, I mean, Max, Max's company makes what 120, 130 watches a year. So seeing any, any number in one place is a remarkable thing for a collector as they get to to know a brand. But, you know, stepping outside of, of independence, um, that's true of of mass market brands too. I mean, if you think about, you know, along and zone right. Another brand that I really love, um, even when they had a retail network, there really weren't that many watches available in the box to see because, again, they only make 4,500, 5,000 watches a year spread across 50, 60 doors all around the world. I don't know if they ever had that many, but I'll play fast and loose. Um, that's not that many watches that will ever be in one place at any one time, let alone the watch that you as a collector might be considering buying. So mono brand boutiques offer a pretty remarkable opportunity. The, the problem fundamentally though is that they operate on this premise that if you want a watch from a brand you're going to want all the watches from a brand and that's that's a really tough proposition you know all things considered and i realize that like for certain brands that that might be true
0: yeah and for for some collectors maybe
1: yeah sure i mean you know i imagine well i know that there are plenty of like paddock exclusive customers and that's all they like that's all they buy you know, and going to a paddock salon for them, and becoming a customer of a paddock salon may actually be the best decision that they can make. But that's paddock. And there's a lot more to the watch world than paddock. And when a brand removes the retail network, not only do they remove the financial safety net that you referred to earlier, they also are, are removing an entire world of advocates for their brand. You know, and the thing about a monobrand boutique is, whoever's working there has to—they don't just need to know one brand; they need to know them all. And if they know them all, then they become passionate about that. You know, I'm sure someone—I'm sure we all have experience of going to a really bad watch store, but I, I'm sure you've all experienced going into a really great watch store where you literally spend hours, and you might even get introduced to something or or give something a second look that you hadn't before because of the passion. Of that person, so they've lost a major marketing channel by not doing that. So I think I think that's going to be benefit. The other thing is, and this is interesting, and this goes into I think if you don't mind, my next prediction.
0: Well, I I think just to clarify my prediction, I'm not saying that monobrand boutiques go away or should go away or they unwind or some of them close. I don't I don't think so at all. I was more commenting on like this. There's been this relentless pursuit oh, by the yeah, brands yeah. of mono brand retail, mm-hmm. and I think that chills out. Yeah. And I think I, I think the value, maybe put another way, like the value of multi brand retail becomes um, m- much more clear um, w- once again to the watch industry. That that's kind of my prediction. Yeah, yeah. That, that makes sense.
1: I'm, I'm on board with that. And uh, as I was saying, <laughs> it leads into my next prediction. Which is around consolidation um, and the benefits of that. I know that sounds weird. So consolidation of what? Consolidation of retailers. Got it. Okay. Right. And this is one thing that we've seen a lot of recently. Right. Whether we're talking about, uh, you know, Booker isn't necessarily consolidation, but they're a massive entity in the uh, in the watch world. Watches of Switzerland is an, uh, an example of uh, of consolidation. Well, I suppose Booker is because they bought yeah, Tornel, torn right? Yeah. yeah um you know watches of switzerland bought a several other um smaller retailers here in the united states to 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 gain a presence here um and then of course the 1916 company right nay watchbox nay v- what was it the uh uh, uh Govberg, right yeah. thank you um and then of course what was the progenitor of watchbox watch you seek watch you want
0: o- oh my god yeah
1: remember that yeah yeah uh, watch you, you want whatever. Moving on. But all of these have consolidated into their own entity, right? The 1916 company is made up of Watchbox for pre-owned, Govberg for new, um, and of course Hyde Park, and also one more, I'm forgetting. Radcliffe. Thank you, Radcliffe. Um, And that consolidation, and these are of course multi-brand boutiques, to your point, that consolidation I think has caused a lot of anxiety in consumers because to a degree they're like, "Uh -uh uh-oh, you know, it was impossible for me to get a sub before, It's going to be even more impossible for me to get a sub now because now I'm being thrown into the pool with everybody making it a lot harder. I actually think that there's a lot of benefit to what we're seeing on the consolidation side in two ways. One, the larger these companies are, the more it's actually going, I think, to pull away from the mono brand boutique, to your point, because the buying power of these entities is significant for mass market watches. And that the appeal of those large orders against the, brand, uh, against the brand's production is quite significant. And that, I think, is going to mean more watches and more availability across the board around the country. Granted, there will be homogeneity there. You know, walking into a Booker is walking into a Booker. And they can talk as much as they want about how it's a curated selection. But, like, you know, <laughs> it's a big box retailer. Can be a great experience, but it's still a big box retailer.
0: So, well, I mean, when, here, here oh, go ahead, right. but then but I have a question about that. Yeah. Totally,
1: which gets to my point, though, which is just as we saw when we when there was a, and this is a weird parallel, but a similar consolidation in the music industry in the nineteen nineties, when Universal Music and Sony Music went and really gobbled up the catalogs of a lot of smaller folks. What we saw was a counterculture appear, right? and incredible records coming out that spawned actually a whole range of artists that are huge uh, and successful today. And the benefit there is if you want high-calorie music, it was available from the Universal Music Group. If you want access to mass market watches, you're going to have a lot better access through consolidation more consistently, I would argue, um, than maybe exists today. But what you're also going to have is an opportunity with independently-owned retailers you know, and I realize I'm biased here, you know, Gabe and I own one, but um, with independent retailers who have broader and more esoteric watches, because that's not going to be worth the time of those stores, which doesn't mean that they don't have an interest in independence. It just means that mathematically, it's just not going to be worth it to them. You know, if you can sell 5,000 Rolexes, why are you trying to sell five independent watches, regardless of price point? And I think that actually is a good thing because it will make access to, to, you know, regular production watches, hopefully easier and encourage independence and independent retailers to really lean in to what they do best and focus on that. And that I think is a, is a net positive.
0: So, yeah, I think what I was going to ask is if you have these uh, larger retailers focused on fewer brands that are really their bread and butter and and are making them money, um, does that lead to a homogenization of taste and a lack and a lack of availability of independent watches? Or do you, I mean, how do you see, uh, I get that it creates a world where people who are independent into independent watches can still discover them and get access to them and, and that sort of stuff. The the music analogy is an, is an interesting one. Um, but does it create, I, I just wonder if that many retailers are focused on mass market brands, and therefore the firepower of their retail locations, their marketing budgets, and all that kind of stuff is really focused on on larger brands. If that if that hurts independent watchmaking,
1: no, I think it helps it because first of all, by say, well, a couple things. One, when we talk about like homogenization of taste, that's a it's kind of an obnoxious thing to say. No offense, because the, the reality is the reason a lot of these watches sell so so well and so in such high quantity is because they're so appealing to so many people and we can and, and as watch collectors and watch lovers that's kind of boring to us but to the hundreds of thousands of people who just want a sub and that's it it's great you know so i, I don't think that like there's an issue with that kind of thing you know like we're never going to get to a point where the independent market, you know, that that's taking intense creative risk, will become dominant as like what's on everybody's risk. And if it did, then it, you know it, it's it's the indie artist that that went that went pop, right? And there'll always be someone that comes up from behind that's more that that, that offers a completely um, new and different point of view. So I, I don't have a problem with there being hundreds of doors for. Companies that make hundreds of thousands of watches, and I'll go even one further: their financial success, those large companies, helps to bolster an industry that creates that has the potential, I should say, to create new watchmakers that take further yeah. risk.
0: It's a great point. So that that actually perfect segue. You must have been reading my mind. That leads to my my third and, and final prediction here, which is I think we're actually going to see a retrenchment on risk taking, and and here's what I mean by that: in a in a watch market. That went nowhere but up in a, in a watch market where, as I was saying earlier, like people were spending more freely, freely because uh, there was just much more liquidity in, in watches. There was less risk to buying something because you could move out of it if you, if, you, if you wanted to or you needed to or, or whatever. I think we're going to see a, a retrenchment on risk-taking both from the customer and from the watch brands themselves. So in a, in a watch market where I talked about rationalizing supply, I think a lot of the brands are going to look at what sells and refocus on that and take less risk. Um, and the other side of it is I think customers may take less risk themselves. And the, the, again, the reason why is if they buy a watch today, it's got to be a much more considered purchase um, for all sorts of reasons that we've we've already discussed, and I, I think people are going to start to second guess purchasing the zany, wild, out there, high concept, funky, weird watch with interesting colors and materials and things like that. That's been one of the, my great joys of the last few years: is watching risk taking and creativity rewarded. I think the poster child for that would be like the Christopher Ward uh, Bel Canto. amazing watch. I wonder in a watch market that is retrenching where brands and consumers are becoming more conservative in how they, how they think about um, it, where they're spending their money. I just wonder if, if we're not going to see a retrenchment on some of that risk taking.
1: Are you thinking about this in the context of mainstream brands or independents or both?
0: Thinking about it in, in the context of, of both, but I think you know one certainly in the case of mainstream large watch brands. Now we could argue if if you know the mainstream large watch brands retrench and focus on their core, that could create opportunity outside of the mainstream. That could create more opportunity for independents. That could create more opportunity for micro brands and others to take risks and be rewarded because there may be a pent up appetite for that, that they're not serving. But Mm. if I were to clarify the prediction, good question. I would say, yeah, it's, it's focused on the traditional mainline, large watch brands.
1: I think you're probably right. Although I would, I would caveat that with that's at the peril of the brand. And I'll, I'll explain. Um, one of, I know obviously one of our favorite brands, um, I mean, heck, we wouldn't exist as a company without them, frankly, is Zenith. And one of the things that I find remarkable about Zenith, you you know, Zenith is is a very different company today than it was 10 years ago, right? A brand, I should say, than it was 10 years ago. You know, 10 years ago, I think uh, it was still kind of a collector's darling, to be honest with you, here in the United States. And the reason that people were buying it was generally, like, driven by uh, the historical implications of the El Primero, right? Like, I want to go out and I want to buy an El Primero. Like, that was the motivating motivating element of the brand. And some of the more interesting watches that they made in the Defy line kind of languished. You know, they just, like, they didn't sell. Um, At least not anywhere near the way the, the El Primero did. But interestingly, the way that that brand has been managed over the last decade, they really worked hard to not only invest heavily in the watch that everybody that requires very low cognitive load to understand and to buy, right, which is an El Primero, whether it's the whether it's a Chronomaster Sport or just you know a classic you know Mickey Mouse dialed El Primero, um, you don't have to think too hard to understand that watch. And people people I think were able to buy that, but because those watches are so great and so intrinsic to Zenith as a brand, it begged the question of like, okay, well, what else you got? And that led to a very methodical, thoughtful, and in many cases, kind of gonzo design uh, or or designs, excuse me, that we saw come out of the Defy line.
0: And now the Defy line is a pretty significant component of Zenith's modern strategy. In the world you're describing five, ten years ago, Defy was uh, not even on people's radar or it was sort of an, uh, an oddity collection. Totally. Yeah. So, you know, in fact, that, I think the pilot's watches were probably after the El Primero, kind of like, the, you know, the second fiddle and Defy stuff was just viewed as kind of out there and experimental. Yeah, I mean, I look, I, I love Defy's um, personally, and I didn't even,
1: you know, look at them in, in 2016, 20, 2015. Um, it took me a while to, like, wrap my head around them. Um, not that I'm, like, you know, any great savior. But yeah, you're right. But, like, the
0: second they, cle- they sort of cleaned up the offering around the Chronomaster El Primero's, it then and it, it just became much more accessible. People got it. They they took another look at Zenith, and then when you do, you realize Defy and pretty much everything. I mean, their new pilot's watches, I think, are also excellent. It, it just provides an on ramp to the brand. Yeah. yeah. So what? So going back to the to the main point,
1: having a strong core gives I think gives a brand permission to to be more experimental in other lines which also gives them permission to turn a customer who has one watch into a two, three, four, five watch client because of that creativity and risk-taking. I understand the corporate mentality of, like, we need to circle the wagons, we need to, like, sell, you know, make what sells, et cetera. But in any industry, that's a, I would argue, is a mistake to do that solely.
0: Oh, yeah, and I'm not not advocating for that. I'm just... Predicting that, well, i know ba- you're not advocating based for based it. I'm just, I'm based just on that- what I know about the Swiss watch industry, <laughs> that's that's my prediction, yeah. and um, it's not a prediction I make with any joy.
1: No, um, but it is it is a, I think a reality, and, and I would also argue. And this is an interesting thing from a consumer standpoint. Consumer behavior is essentially what will drive all of those decisions, or have, or you know, in your example, this prediction would drive this change. So I would say if consumers really want to see risk-taking and watch-making, then consumers need to take risks in watch-buying. And that goes back to the whole intro that we had of the metric of a watch isn't isn't and should not be tied to its fundamental value. And while we're talking about the business of this, ironically, a lot of who's in control of this are the buyers. Mm -hmm. You know, people, like, we buy watches for our store based on not only what we love... But within the brands, yeah. what we think
0: people will buy. Well, and that's why this was a two-sided prediction. It's not just about the brands pulling back. But I, you know, I think, truthfully, we see this in in people buying from us as well. We get a lot more um, questions like, is this a safe buy? Is this going to hold its value? I mean, I had someone message me the other day about a watch. Um, thank you for messaging me. But the question was, is this going to go up? And I just simply responded, I, I don't know. I can't I can't tell. And I think that's a question look, there's nothing wrong with that question. You can ask any question you want about a watch and you can buy a watch for whatever reason you you want. Um but I think it signals to me that consumers themselves and a lot of collectors themselves are becoming more conservative and considered in, in their approach to to buying and, and, and buying things that they view as quote-unquote safe, whether, whether that's a good or bad thing or otherwise. Why don't we move on to the final prediction? Because mm-hmm. this one is a very different prediction from a lot of the other things we've been talking about, which are really dynamics around the industry and the customer. But I, I really like this one. I think it's an important one, so I want to give it its time. Cool. Ready for a hot take? E- yes, I am. I had asked you to <laughs> tell me your prediction, so yeah. please.
1: So um, over the... Uh, frame this up fairly and appropriately. I would not be in this job today and, and owning this company with Gabe without Hodinky. And what I mean by that is for years and years and years, I read hodinky.com every single day as religiously as any other news or interest site that I would consume content from. And Hodinki is arguably responsible for the entire renaissance of watch media that we have seen over the last but 15 they're years. They're
0: probably one of the most, if not the most influential institution or whatever in the watch industry in the last 10 years. Yeah, I, 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 100%. However, as
1: the, as the, as Hodinki has evolved, as all of the other, um, watch media that, that we can think of have evolved, um... There's, be, there's, there's, there's this feeling of distrust that has started to come out in the market. And if you spend any time in a comment section on any site, whether it's Revolution or Time and Tide or Fratello or whatever, you'll see it. There's this feeling that whatever is being written feels like it was purchased, Whether or not that's true. And frankly, we should have some watch journalists on the show to to really get into what it means to be a watch journalist. Because in fairness, I think there's probably a lot of assumptions there on everybody's part about what's actually going on. And I think it's it's worth exploring. But that doesn't, you know, what's actually happening doesn't necessarily correlate to how people feel, which is true about everything. (laughs) But as a result, I think what we've also seen now is not just... Because of the success of Hodinki, not just um, the backlash, but also on a flip side, honestly um, a little bit of a homogenization of content and that's that, that that makes it feel a little bit too predictable, and that has along with the disaggregation of content by by watchville, you know whatever has created a situation where I don't think people look to watch media, tra- the, the traditional watch media, in the same way that they do right, as they did five years ago, seven years ago. When, you say, when
0: you're talking about the homogenization of watch content, you're, what do you mean? Like what I mean blog is, posts with photos and videos of people talking about watches? Like well, a, I, w-
1: I wouldn't say blog posts with photos because that, that completely disregards the quality of the pros. Okay, But what I mean by that is like, let, let's take watches and wonders coverage, right? All of us know what we can expect from that generally, which is, Guy in suit next to Guy in suit, holding watch, talking about why watch is so incredible. Oh my God, we love watch. Go buy watch. Rinse, repeat, again. And this is not unique to the watch industry. This is just true of any trade coverage, right? But like it is what it is. What we have, and I think that's sort of just frankly can get quite dull. And as a result, is is pushing people away. Now I don't think watch media. coverage of the watch industry is going to go anywhere. But I do think we're going to start to see a reinvention driven largely by personality and unique point of view. And I'll give you an example. When we were at Watches and Wonders last year, you know, it's a sea of professionals walking around and a sea of, uh, of media folks that are highly recognizable walking around with microphones and cameras and the rest, right? You can spot them a mile away. And amidst this a sea of recognizable roles walked three guys dressed in janitorial outfits doing gonzo journalism. And of course, I'm talking about the About Effing Time guys. Now, the three people in About Effing Time all have significant credibility in the watch industry. Heck, one of them even founded a traditional media outlet, right? Andrew McCutcheon, Time and Tide. But they decided to approach time, approach uh, uh, the coverage of the show by making their own show, essentially, and not following the traditional rules of media. And it was incredibly compelling. Now, they still accomplished what everybody wanted, right, which is show me the novelties, peel back the curtain, show me the show. But they did it in their own way. That was personality-driven. And I think... That, to me, suggests that we might be at an inflection point with watch media where it's not enough to just report and know a lot. You have to report, know a lot, and actually have a conceit to your show that's just entertaining and compelling so it doesn't feel like you're getting the same thing from outlet A that you get from
0: outlet b or a very or a very unique point of view. you know, I think two other guys who do a great job with this obviously and have a huge following and have managed to uh you know manage to I, I hope, I think, earn a, earn a living or or um, go a long way toward that. Are the Gray NATO guys? Oh yeah, and Gray NATO is based entirely on on the personality of James and Jason. It's a you know it's really personal. They talk about details of their their personal lives, and and you listen to that pod, and you, over time you really feel like you get to know these guys in 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 a personal way. And there's just a authenticity and a, really a credibility to what they do. Um, That's that's missing in more mainstream watch media. Now, of course, James also writes for Hodinkee. Jason used to write for Hodinkee as well. And that hasn't spared Hodinkee, for instance, from a lot of the ire you're discussing the the uh, the the toxic comments and the cynicism and that sort of thing. But when you think whether that is
1: fairly deserved or not, by the way.
0: Sure. And, and I'm not saying it is. I mean, like you, I owe Hodinky nothing but a debt of gratitude. But, you know, when I think about the Grey NATO, when I think about F in Time, when I think about Adrian Barker's YouTube channel and yeah. others, there's a positivity um, to those to those media outlets. They feel different and fresh. Yes. But they also feel extremely personal and unvarnished. You know what? In, I'm just realizing as we said this, you know, was with the, some of the best
1: content that came out of Hodinkee last year and is arguably a perfect example of this was Danny Milton's, uh, journey across America. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: And that to me was like, that, that was like, Oh, Hodinkee's like, go, go that like walk
0: in that direction. Yeah. They, they first debuted that series, I think it was with, uh, Cole Pennington mm-hmm. and he was, I think he, it started in Thailand. Um, and he was really exploring like the passion around Seiko in, yeah. in Thailand in particular. And it almost felt kind of like, uh, uh, you know, Anthony Bourdain, no reservations kind of thing. Yeah. Where the part of the appeal of that is like, yeah, you know, it, it, that was the travel channel, I guess. But, you know, you're, you're really buying into Anthony Bourdain and his worldview and in the way you did with Cole and his sense of adventure and, and personal connection to those watches and with, with Danny as well.
1: So I think this, this, you know, to put a bow on this prediction, I think we might start seeing, I hope we start seeing, and it can come from anywhere, it could still come from a Hodinky or a Time and Tide or a Revolution or whatever, but I hope we see more of this idea of a, a show with a specific point of view, hosted by someone with a point of view, and a clear conceit, and move away from the stand and repeat, you know, uh, description of, you know, description of Watch X by Watch Brand Director Y. You know, because and frankly, I think the brands deserve that, too, because ultimately, in order for us to understand and to love these things, we need somebody with passion, enthusiasm and knowledge to present them to us. And that, I think, is something that that there's a blank space for that now.
0: Yeah. All of this gets us far away from the lowest form of watch marketing that exists, which is essentially regurgitating a press release. Right. So um, it's welcome. Kind of kind of a mixed bag across all these all these predictions, you know, looking at watch media, looking at the consumer, of course, looking at the industry and, and retail itself. Well, we're going to have to come back and, uh, and, and look at these predictions a year from now and, and see how we did and see where, where the industry is. Should we, uh, should we leave it there? Let's leave it there. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for, for listening. This is Open Work, a podcast from Collective Horology. You can find us online at collectivehorology.com. And to get in touch with your suggestions, feedback, or questions, just email podcast at collectivehorology.com.